everyone. It's the Life of Gem Live video podcast, episode two, season 13. And I am here with the epic Allison Hedge Coke. It's going to be amazing. This is writing your soul. Before we get started, I did want to do two things. I wanted to give a shout out to my niece, Sarah, who's in the hospital, and her two kids, um, Ralphie and um, her daughter, Stephanie. And I just wanted to say, we love you, Sarah, and you're going to be okay. And second, I wanted to do a land acknowledgement. Thank you, Allison, for giving me this. This is written by the students of UC Riverside. The Life of Jam live video podcast would like to respectfully acknowledge and recognize our responsibility to the original and current caretakers of this land, water, and air, the Kawia, Tongva, Luceno, and Serrano peoples and all of their ancestors and descendants, past, present, and future. Today, this meeting place is home on both sides of this camera to many indigenous people all over the world. And we are grateful to have the opportunity to live and work here. Thank you. I think that's really important. And you'll, you're gonna really understand why today. Um, I'm going to introduce Allison, then bring her in and she's gonna read and then we'll chat. Allison Adele Hedge Coke. Recent honors include a 2022-2023 UC Mellon Dean's Professorship, the 2021-2022 California Arts, Camp, Arts Council Legacy Art, Artist Fellowship, the 2021 AWP George Garrett Award, the 2021 induction into the Texas Institute of Letters, a 2020 Daniel and Maggie Anoy Distinguished Chair in Democratic Ideals at the University of Hawaii, a 2019 Fulbright in Montenegro, a 2018 First Jade Female Poetry Festival, Sihu China, Excellent Foreign Poet, and 2016 U.S. Library of Congress Witter Biner Fellow. Her latest release, and you must get this book, everyone. The link is in the comments. I believe it's Coffee House Press. You must get this book. Look at this blue. 2022 Coffee House Press. It was just long listed for the National Book Award for Poetry. Allison has seven books of poetry, an amazing book of nonfiction, a memoir, and a play. She is a distinguished professor of creative writing at UC Riverside, my alma mater, and she's a Macondista as well. Welcome, Allison. I'm going to bring you in now. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And, and thank you, everyone who's watching or who tunes in later for the replay. Um, yeah, I'm just going to read from Look at This Blue. Great. I'm going to put the camera just on you. Okay. In the field, forced to crawl through culvert, water neck high, floating, no way to maneuver with the child through this, to escape immersion, criminals, violence, to find peace, find home, find dreaming. Like clouds pulling into towers, we gathered, all of us. They made us throw out the suitcase we brought, made us leave the known. We empty ourselves for something promised, now a threat. I remember spare changing with him on the second floor watching what I brought in. Your earnest face asking me, where is he? How about you and I leave? I buy you dinner, you get away. My emptiness void of belief, such was real. 
even a quarter, hand extended, I still think of you sometimes. When he busted my face, oftentimes my diligence went unnoticed. When he claimed I was in car wrecks, his mom believed, nearly killed me in one, so must be a car week wreck every week or so. Each time purple faded, teeth repaired, gauze removed, bruised from brow to jaw, pummeled, what a mess. Those who rage are full of emptiness, hollow people, unfilled, vacant. Hate fulfills the space, festers there, blooms. Vacancy blinked neon in motor court windows like his eyes. Heart. Was it a heart? No heart. Something in me could care less now. Something in my rearranged appearance fits my unfittedness. Signals this one can be. Don't be fooled. I have a way out. In the bus, on the way to retraining for field workers, we left Santa Paula for Ventura daily. Rhododendron, eucalyptus, limonario, orange groves, peppers, flowers for Burpee Seed Company. Red wing hawks every mile of eucalyptus, 126 Ventura Freeway, on watch like us for movement. X, Santa Paula, North Star of Guanajuato, Mupu, of Shumash. We escaped here, refugees, closed eyes, let finger conjure map, conjure home. This is where, from here, everything changes. Rewrite, reset, reverb, offer projects for Sani and Ez kids at GitGo, offer self, send for my folks to follow, dad notes, know this, if there is snow on Topa Topa, everything's okay. Mom doesn't leave the pickup until the fourth day. Vallejo apartment, their last place west, coast, way prior to my lifetime. Restful now. Restart. Gratitude. So lucky to have a dad. Vista Del Mar next. Resort asylum we deliver her to. Begin a new life. I picked the lock when she bolted, drove her north to find peace, admits schizophrenia with California persuasion, first time in facility without a state embrace, first time without electroshock, without abuse, without malice there where we left her so many times. Here she begins now. Your father released from prison. For voice modulated arson tell all. He would knock over someone, something, force me into the car to drive him. We would be chased, careen, pull over. He would jump out with sawed offs ready, walk straight up to them, tell them what they would tell their dispatch, and they would. I never knew him before he assaulted me. Your arm was twisted, bone exposed, face past the point of wet, stained. Fledgling fell there. He wouldn't stop crying, so he's been sitting here since lunch. That was the final day you were left prominent. All bland shaming. Big boys don't use their left hand. The class scissors are made for right hands. Suddenly would satisfy same teacher who marched you here and complained about the noise after the class favorite broke your arm on the monkey bars. Like me when the boys suck around house me coming around that hall corner. Upper force lifted me off, hard land on knee, moved the cap, blood everywhere from fully laid out nose. First teacher on the scene invokes surname. Clean up this mess. Schools were made to break us. Santa Paula Bank on Harvard, was it? Dad, deaf, spoke out loud. Where did everyone go? 
while Teller's duct covered, while Robert displayed his weapon to me, gestures at my toddler suggest I gather. I motioned toward Dad, gesturing his deafness, offered to gather him as well. Mercy, with peace, from the bank robber who escapes on a bicycle about the time tellers remember him from high school. On Harupa, a bike laid flat, crashed out, up against the curb, just below his awkwardly posed corpse, was a sense of it, something crude, a twisting, limb-thrusting, rigid blue, spread out in some complex tangle, unnatural, under sign for child care center, 30 feet from his fall. He must have flipped there, over handlebars, like a child might, striking concrete too fast, too hard. This man, maybe heart attack, maybe assaulted, his clothes worn, raggedy, last testament, homeless maybe. We moved to prayer in the moment, called 911, begged for mercy, begged for peace, sympathy for miserable, the river bottom people, begged for when we were them, scruffed, scuffled, sleeping under the underpass, in dryers to keep warm, kids we were, under shattered skies, dogs licking our faces, all we knew of love here. Each chihuahua, every four-legged, under arms held close, every homeless leaning into shade and swelter. We worry about water. Are they slaked? I'm 50 years old. I have MS. They beat me up, he offers, when we insist he come order a sandwich with us, subway counter. Can I get a bag of chips, a drink? His eyes so neglected, I throw my arms around him, hug him sisterly. Mahore at register begins to cry. We carry his order to table, his legs fully turn in at the knees, feet uncooperative, not even a shuffle to them, just laborous plow. I plead with him to go to City Hall for help, for immediate need programs. I don't know who to ask. I can't get around. We eat. I send love through my skin, eyes, insist it's not enough, buy sandwich, give advice. Late at night, I weep for him, for all of us who don't fit for vacuous disparity between beauty, pain, all those nights spent under the trestles when it was just me that way. So the little excerpt. So beautiful. So, so beautiful. Um, Melissa Bennett's watching on Twitter. Uh, She's a Macondista and she says she loves you so much. Oh, cool. Thank you, Melissa. Um, Anyone that wants to... um, Put a question that's watching on Twitter. Feel free. I have that open on my phone. I'll check that periodically. You can also put questions in um, the question box here. So, um, so just to start out, this book is one long poem, right? You and I talked yeah. about this before because it, it you have to notice this on the front page of this beautiful cover. It says a poem. Can you tell us a little bit about how you structured this and uh, what? how it's one long piece because I didn't get that at first and when you told me it it really made a lot of sense yeah Um, I'm one of those people that you hear about I have a couple of superpowers that are uh, (laughs) they're good for me because they're within (laughs) me but they're not something that really does a lot for other people unless you use them artistically Uh, one of them is I can make my eardrums play at will So I can have a a drum roll anytime I like or make my head sound like it's purring. I have that ability. (laughs) It's a rare thing, but it doesn't really do 
anything is kind of a superpower some of us have, but it didn't really do anything. And the other one I have is I have a constant radio on in my head. Just all the time there's music, um, mostly mm. original. And, uh, and so oftentimes this music will compel me. And uh, look at this blue is very jazz oriented, very jazz influenced, very improvisational jazz influence. Uh, there is a refrain. There's a lot of lines where there's solo things happening with different players. Um, and the entire piece works as a poem and it's an assemblage poem. So it comes from both the original lines of the poem and also from what is um, the synapse that's firing that or the known value or unknown value that is firing that um, happening from things in the world going on that have gone on that um, seem to be happening very soon from now and this present moment. And so it's an arrangement of all of those. It's a bit of a concert, if you will. Yeah, and it's funny that you say that because Ruthie, um, who's uh, the author of Agave Blue, she lives in the desert in Palm Springs. She just said yes, like a symphony. Yeah. Brava for this long poem. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's great. And I I was mad at myself that I didn't catch it at first, but I definitely hear the music in here. Mm -hmm. And that emotional resonance was so strong for me. And I told you this in the green room that I got very emotional reading this and um, it became quite overwhelming because it was so powerful to me at times. Was that one of your goals to wake us all up to what's going on in the world, both personally, politically, you know, it's kind of an anthem call for change and peace and acknowledgement. Yeah. um, All of that. I feel, have felt, uh, continue to feel, the sense of impending doom, the dire escape of things that have been going on for so long since the industrial age when it comes down to it and what's happened on the planet and and with so much sort of diabolical um, perpetrators on the planet who have played out the schemes for capitalization, for industrialization, for colonization, for all of these differentizations that we live in that have created not only our our climate change, which is absolutely dire, uh, but have also ridded the planet of many of its beautiful species and have done such detriment to those of us who are living here now that we're not in, in the form we should be in this lifetime. None of us are. Uh, they're killing us. And at times it seems like a very slow thing, an onslaught that's very slow, but not for the people who are being genocided currently at that moment and not for the animals who are being um, having their life cut short, ended, their entire population's gone, not for the plants in that sense. Um, so it's, it's huge. It can't be ignored. And for me, uh, that kind of a... Uh, signifier has been going on since childhood. We would talk about these things in my family when I was really small, uh, the shape of things. And I had another book due uh, September 1st, 2019. I was landing in Montenegro, wasn't happy with the book that I was sending in. And I had a weekend to myself in another person's apartment in a country I'd never lived in. And nobody to check in on me, nobody to interrupt me. And I gave in to the music in my head 
and the knowns I've been carrying around from 42 years of off and on living in California from my very first time moving to California and trying to make something work and and having to leave because I couldn't even get services because they called me indigent and then coming back again and doing the former field worker training because I was I was a field worker before my time in in California and getting a boost at that time and then having to leave for other issues that came up in work. So I have a very long period of in and out of California. I'm living and working here now. And there's a lot that's gone on here. And when you really love something, mm. when you really love somebody and you have a, a deep investment in that relationship and your gratitude for being in the place that you are, in the lands that, of course, belong to other people, where you're sleeping, where you're living, where you're breathing, where you're working, you know, this deep sense of gratitude, you also have to hold that which you love accountable and call it out and indict when necessary. Uh, so it's a bit of a love letter and a bit of indictment of California. And uh, what I had to give in that flurry of complete obsession to attend to what was driving me during that weekend. Uh wow. Yes, the book is the result of that, and it's all of the things you said and, and more. Yeah. Yeah, because for me, the California that you show the reader is one that is ablaze, both literally and figuratively. There's this theme of fire in your work. Yeah. It's not the idealized California of a Joni Mitchell song. It's not abstract. It's real. It's sad. It's barren. It's desolate. And you write on page 68, land of the war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. And then the last line says, California, California. And I heard that Joni Mitchell song. And I also heard a little anti-Joan Didion kind of elitism. Like, this is blue-collar California. This is what it really looks like. These are the people that live here. These are the species. We're all connected. Take care of us, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and uh, definitely, and um, you know, it's great you got that exactly. Um I am even calling out sort of references to California in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you know, living here and knowing these songs that have been uh, sort of addressed the state in different ways. Uh, we also know how it really plays out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's people who reside here and who have lived here over different iterations of their own life. And so there is a bit of a push there and using it in a different way. There's also a reference in the book to Marvin Gaye being killed by his father. And a lot of music that happens during that particular segment. Again, the music driving force and uh, thinking about, you know, the inexcusable things that happen in violence and uh, how much we we lose. You know, this genius, this brilliance, this beauty that we lose in the hands of violence. You know, that's there, too. Yeah. And I definitely saw that overwhelming, overarching theme of violence. You have um, the poem that you read from, there's a reference to domestic abuse. Um, There's also on page 27, this reference that I found, um, and I'll get back to my other questions that I had earlier, but I want to get to page 27 because you talk about this, and I don't know whether this is memoirish or not, or whether it's based on truth and whether that matters, whether you're inhabiting a character yourself or both, but you talk about uh, Ventura County Public Defender 
asked me to drop the charges. Uh, do you want to read that poem rather than yeah. me quote it? I'd love them to hear it because I think your voice is just, and the way that you use legalese in it is so important. And you're really turning these this language on its head. So here's the excerpt on 27, if anyone's following along. I, I ad-lib a lot when I'm reading, so <laughs> you might hear me change words. Apologies if that happens. After he cut his hand, oh, sorry, I'm going to start again. After he cut, I go, he didn't cut his hand. Let me let me fix that. After he cut this hand, severed tendon, punched this face, mocked, bruised, cut, punched again. His Ventura County public defender, a woman, asked me to drop charges so he wouldn't miss class. Not happening. Not happening. Not happening. Guilty. She wants suspended imp anyway. This is how roadside trash pickup equates even. Yes, yeah, so that is autobiographical. This hand was knifed through. I've been I've been assaulted a lot in my life. And um, and on that occasion he had a female attorney uh, defending him, public defender, um, assigned his case who came over to me in the courtroom and said, you know, he's in school and you should just let this go. And, and, uh, and I didn't put this in the book, but the truth of the matter is I looked at her and said, you're a woman and you're asking me to do this. I said, you know what? I said, that just gave me some incentive to get up on the stand and tell some other things that have gone on. And I said, you want to hear the whole thing? And she went over and sat down uh, the judge found him guilty, gave him, you know, the go pick up some trash and she got a suspended amp. So there's nothing on his record. Uh, the guy married an attorney after and there's nothing on his record. And uh, yeah, so these things happen and the court system isn't always in a place to address any of this. But as a person who has brought people up on charges for assault, uh, it's not the only case, uh, unfortunately, um, to have a to have that kind of question come up in a courtroom from somebody who should get what's happening here uh, felt like additional assault to me. So, you know, that was not going to happen at that point. I was in a courtroom. Nobody could hit me in there. At least you, you hope not. I mean, things do happen in courtrooms as well. They do. But, yeah, I have seen them. Happen, but, but what that said to me as a deputy public defender who of course I have to represent my client yeah. and I have become especially in tune to you know um, sometimes we'll hear a victim impact statement in court and you're not paying attention recently I've been trying to pay more attention but what you did for me here is open my eyes to like the the whole spectrum of the world I work within and how it's so contradictory and sad and tragic and that the system doesn't help anyone. And your book is a lot about systems. Yeah. And um, I mean, it just, to me, it just had this special resonance because I, I probably have done that. I'm going to be honest. And I'm a woman. Of course, and I'm a feminist. That's, job. I that's mean, my job. But, <laughs> but there's yeah. a way I could do it is what it taught me. There's a way I could say, I am so sorry for everything you have went through. Mm -hmm. I empathize with you deeply. And I am, you know, from as a woman, I feel you. But as a public defender, I have to ask if you'd be willing to do. I mean, it just taught me something so profound about the way I practice. And not just with my clients, but with um, 
victims. And so, I mean, thank you for that. I think it's really important. Um, it's really easy to become desensitized in what I do. And you just really opened my eyes to that. Um, I mean, there's so much what you said, too. And it really is state of the state, this book. And so there's yeah. a lot of legalese. There's a lot of system issues because that's what the state is. I mean, when it comes yeah. down to it, that's exactly what it is. And whatever can propagate that, uh, promote it, sustain it, happens. And yeah. anything in its way is in its way enriched. Uh, so it's an interesting sort of juncture to uh, to move into that whole scope and see how much of it affects us every day. You know, uh, some of this is, of course, autobiographical, but in some ways, as a witness, um, it is all that in some ways, because even when you are, if you've been through these things and you see a story, you hear a story, you witness something like the guy with the MS at our subway downtown right. here, you know, we're in this, we're all complicit we're all culpable i can't see somebody like that in somewhere i literally hugged him right in front of everybody in there bought him something to eat talk with yep. him try to tell him where to go to get help i'm not a person who can be around something and not act i just don't have it in me and um and in so much like calling out the state with these uh, implications that have affected all of us at some point in time or another is essential, I think. And it's a poet's job, you know, it's, a, it's, it's part of our work. Uh, so I, I don't want to uh, play this down either, what you just said a moment ago about being moved in a way and readdressing things because, because also asking for that, you know, how can, how can we uplift? How can we shift? How can we change things? You know, where is, uh, the tangle and let's unravel that thing and take it apart and let's do some restorative work and let's move, yeah. move into something else together. Right. We're on this together. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. Yeah. That, that concept of restorative justice is something I've recently been thinking a lot about. How do you get past this system and get to the people, but you have to see the people first, you know, yeah. and that you can give someone lunch or touch someone or see them. Yeah. I think it's just about seeing them yeah, um, yeah. and and about seeing them. You talk this whole book is the way place plays a role. You know, I love books about place. My own book is called Tales of an Inland Empire Girl. So, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of obsessed with um, a place as a character. And you look at this, you use this refrain, look at this blue a lot mm -hmm. on page 73, on mm -hmm. page 94, people are far along. What is blue? Is blue the earth? Is blue yeah. sadness? Is blue law? I mean, what is it? It's all of those things. It's got, blue has so many different levels. I mean, even the Portuguese word saudade or saudade, yeah. depending on where you're from. I mean, that old faro music that predates blues in the U.S. And the musics that predate, you know, contemporary blues or what's known as blues in the U.S. also have these deeper, more soulful oh. meanings. And, you know, indigenous communities. I'm just communities. getting this right now. <laughs> All the stuff. It's like it's it's in there. It's in us. It's our it's our very being being moved, right? And longing and dealing with pain and dealing with angst and also love and and affection and it's all of that. And uh, and it is our planet and it is our air. It's our water. It's our land. Even from the distance here in Riverside. You know, if you get a good day, you see the blue mountains, you know, in the distance. And, you know, it's all of that. So it's surrounding us all the time. And when it's 
taken care of and nurtured and it's it's well you know we can see that and when it's not we have that sort of orange just glow in the sky and wow. and the water is you know full of all kinds of bacteria and murky stuff and uh and we know what happens to the land they pummel it right and concrete right. it over all of that stuff uh, so the blue is all of that uh but it's also you and me in our hearts you know mm-hmm. It's also that the blood before it comes out of the vessel. We look at our arms; it's blue, right? Yeah, the mainstream really part, you know. And I, I did hear um, Bowie in this, and I, I'm, it's just my yeah, obsession. Yeah. I know, um, but you, there's a, this theme of time and space. Yeah. Um, on the excerpt on page forty-two, you have a line that you say, "What happens when stars die? Death of a star, death yeah, of a yeah. star." Your work seems so timely yet timeless. Are you saying that time's relative and presence and being present is important, but we're running out of time? I mean, I was trying to kind of go really deep on this and really think, because, um, you know, yeah. Black Star by Bowie was his final album before he died. And absolutely. I know I'm bringing my own music. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, oh. it's <laughs> that was in the house as, as well, you know, when I was young. And, uh, you know, it's all of that. And in this particular page, this excerpt that you're mentioning uh, starts calling out things from our flag, you know, the state flag, how it looks and the star there. And it took me to other dimensions with that you know and why is it named this and what does that actually tell us and what's happening when star die and and what does that mean what's the implication you know the star has its galaxy wherever it is and what happens to everything there at that time uh, but also that temporal skipping or that jumping you know that happens in temporal knowns to unknowns and sort of portal skipping between different time levels and like, when i was a kid and we asked my dad uh, how does somebody prophecy, like how do your sisters know we're coming and have a table set with our chairs and they don't have telephones? You know, how does that happen? And he go, well, you'll be doing something really important and somebody else will have a dream about it. Or somebody in, in your background, in your genetic code will feel that. And so your ancestors will feel it. Maybe one of them will have the dream and they'll say, this is going to happen in the future, you know, and we've already shared that time there because what's happening now is affecting them and the same thing ahead. So I do think about that kind of temporal shift and what goes on there. I mean, Juanita, have you ever been driving a car and then suddenly it seems like you, you got like 20 miles and you have no memory of the in-between? Yes, all the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're in a space. Something's happening, whether it's a line yeah. for a novel or a poem or a song. Something's happening within us. And while we're in that engagement, even though we're functionally operating, you know, yeah. clearly because we got there, we did not share that same linear sense of time as maybe somebody else in the vehicle. You know, it didn't happen for us because we were already ahead, right? Yeah. And, you know, it goes to the idea of channeling. And if you want to talk a little more about that, uh, if you have any suggestions for people how to reach that space, because we have a lot of writers that watch this podcast. It's mostly Mm -hmm. writers that watch it, actually, and um, or artists or creatives. And I think that how do you tap into that? Because like I even have a hard time recently because I have so much going on. It used to I used to find time to give myself time and space when you have limited time or limited space and people yeah. around and people grabbing you and wanting your time, how, how do you get there to that, to that deep place, right? Subconscious level where you're, where it's 
because I write my memoir pieces that's channeling. I don't, I don't research them first. I write them, then I research and double check yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, uh, uh, I think for every person, it's a little different. So I want to say that um, I mentioned earlier that when I wrote this, I had time and space in a place I'd never lived, mm. very unfamiliar, and I had this thing happening within me that I just let loose and went with. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I did take four walks. Maybe I had a little bite of something. I did drink a lot of coffee, drink some water. But I just <laughs> went to it for like 48 hours and then closed it down and said, okay. And then I like slept for a week. You know, I sent it in first and then I slept for a week. Wow. And I thought, okay, that happened. Let's see what they think about that. And I was on deadline. So I, I got it in. I did not like the book I was working on. But I literally just followed the initiative, what was compelling me, what was driving me, and I did not stop until mm. it was exhausted. Uh, in the end, when I was um, working with my editor and copy editing and such, she had a lot of questions, of course, and uh, we went through a lot of conversation, and we decided it was a little too long and some of the things could be cut out. So I actually overwrote, which happens when you're purging which happens when you let go, which happens when you have nothing holding you back because you've created a space for yourself and or circumstance has that allows you to get to things. That's why a lot of people go to retreats. Uh, some people are distracted by retreats, but that's why a lot of people intend to go to writing retreats mm -hmm. is to have that sort of sacred space to do it in. How can we create that? How can we do it at home, you know, on the money when we need it, how can we make it happen when we're surrounded by distractions and by intrusions? Interesting question. Um, I, I, when I when I found out I was uh, longlisted for National Book Award, first thing I felt was, uh, yeah, surprise, and then I felt relief. I loved hearing it from a former student because we could have this little moment together. And Raju Mohibir is a super talented poet. Uh, just loved it. And you didn't know when he told you, right? You had, you had no So we had this little time together to just have this moment of coming to the knowledge of. And my sort of second breath in that was just relief. And after that, I I kind of leaned back and thought, just imagine if we had a world where we had no distractions and could just create, you know, uh, because yeah. that's that's the problem for all, all creative people, for all writers, for the most part, unless you have extended privilege in some way uh, and don't have a lot of uh, responsibility or duties to things, then perhaps you can create that for yourself. But for most of us working writers, um, it's a rarity. Uh, so how do we how do we make it happen? Uh, one of the things I, I used to do when I was starting out emerging um, a long time ago uh, was um, I would take vitamin B, uh, vitamin B before I went to sleep at night because I knew it made me dream really vividly and it would wake me up at some time in the dream mm. before. And I would literally write the dreams as short stories and publish them, uh, you know, because Beautiful. it was all clean. My mind was doing all the work, like you said, you do with your memoir, you know, and not thinking about, I just get up and write my dreams, publish them as stories, and they, they publish. Uh, so I would create the space where my subliminal conscious was doing the work. Uh, with the poetry, it's more like I let the radio in my head do mm -hmm. what it 
rights to do until I can find the language for it. So I think, I guess what I'm getting down to is how to get to that deeper space is find out who you are, uh, what makes you tick and, and, and make that happen as much as you can so that you are you. And no matter what goes on around you, you can tap into that. Uh, just like you may close your eyes and imagine a well down below the ground that you're pulling up tap roots from in your feet and quenching your throat. You know, it's like, you know where you are, you know how to ground yourself and let you be you. Um, there's a beautiful breakup song that says, uh, why don't you be you and I'll be me. And I, <laughs> why didn't they have that around when I was young? It's a great breakup song, but it's also got a lot of agency in it, you know? Uh, and oftentimes we can walk away from, that which is distracting us by just saying, why don't, you know, why don't you do this and, and I'll be me over here. Uh, so I think part of that sort of protective thing we need to do for ourselves as writers is, is find the you, hold on to the you, take care of the you and let that be what hits the page. You know, the deeper implications mm. within you and what you have to offer, you know, because we want to know what you have in you. It's what you bring to the page that's going to be remarkable that I can't do that, you know, nobody else I know can do only you can do. And so tapping into that is like a, a really great gift for the rest of us who will read it, you know? So, so think of uh, maybe allowing yourself to time and space to relax into yourself and to feel mm. yourself so that you know what's growing there. Is that helpful? Juanita? Oh my gosh. I'm getting emotional because I really do believe that my books took so long because I did not value my voice. I did not value who I was and the simplicity of it. Oh, and it's true. only when I accepted that and who I was, right? I'm a high school dropout. Yeah, who yeah. became a lawyer. I'm not just school. a lawyer, right? I, I always right. say I wasn't born with a silver spoon. I was born with a pink Dairy Queen spoon in my mouth. And yeah, um, yeah. I had to accept that to really be myself. And finding yourself is actually the hardest part, right? Yeah. I mean, if you don't know who you are absolutely, or you're, or you're pretending to be someone else. And yeah, yeah. that's what I love about your book. There's like no subterfuge here. It's so, um, for want of a better term, blue collar and authentic. You know, it's so... I mean, there's this on page 105. This is there's this line where you say schools were made to break us yes. like it's stuff like that, like us. Who is us? Schools, the institutions, all of this. Right. It's made to break us and to make us think we're less than we are. We go to an MFA program and they tell you to fix this or fix that. Maybe it doesn't need to be fixed because I went back to the first version of some of my stories for my book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always tell my students in workshop, you know, workshop, a good workshop can actually kill a great piece very quickly because everybody will respond from their own points of uh, conjecture, uh, their own offerings, their own suggestions. And if yeah. the poet can't discern what of that is malleable to what they're working mm -hmm. with, then they won't know how to cut that off and what what needs to happen in the quick of it or if anything does. I've seen poems come in that I would have published, and I've added a lot. I would have published yeah. like that, just seeing it come into workshop. Don't touch this. I've even written that on, on some people's work. Do not touch this poem. I don't care what happens today. Wow. Trust me. And then the yeah. next workshop, they bring it in is completely destroyed. You know, so I, I try to talk to people all the time about having a deeper trust knowing when something yeah. is working uh, and, you know, sending this in, I didn't know, honestly, did, I didn't know if my press would 
accept it. I didn't know if my publisher would like it. I thought if it was certain editors there who picked it up, they might love it. Um, it's a beast of a book. And <laughs> it out, I was like, they'll love it or they hate it. But I, this is in me. I got to give it up. Uh, and so you trusted your your gut. I mean, yeah, this is up for the yeah. National Book Award. Yeah, that yeah, is a yeah. huge accomplishment. And, you know, I mean, it just goes, you know, some of the best songs are written in an hour a day. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Beatles Absolutely. used to write their songs in a day. A lot of yeah. other, the Beach Boys, I mean, yeah. you know, Brian Wilson used to create these. Absolutely. Hear the music in his head and write it yeah, down. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, it's true. I mean, and that happens. And, uh, somebody asked me the other day uh, how to know what to follow and what to ignore. Yeah. And I said, hey, if something's got my attention. You know, I'm going to write it and uh, find where it takes me because maybe it's not that, but it's leading me to what I need to be into. Uh, so find, you know, find that thread and write it. Keep it going as long as you can. Uh, when you're done, you'll know you're done. You know, set it aside. Maybe you'll come back to it, maybe not. Uh, but if you don't pursue You've gained yeah. nothing. And the curiosity that took you there, the impression that led you, the drive that forced you or compelled you to write something will be lost, you know, and we'll, we'll suffer for that, all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it'll be a huge loss. And, you know, there's this excerpt on page 59 and 60 that starts tenderloin, tenderloin mornings where seventh, eighth gen shirt tails undeserving. Can you talk a little bit since, you know, we started this with an acknowledgement and I think that, you know, Native heritage, race, generational trauma um, is how does that is all throughout this book. But the way it's woven in, I mean, I mean, the massacre part, it's your, you know, you tell us overtly, but the other um, parts, you know, we're reading into this like like generational trauma is real and it's passed down and it's continuing. Like, how does that impact your work? Yeah. Uh, I think it's always been a major, a major implication, a major influence as well in the work. Um, these things we lived through. I remember in 1992, I was contacted by, Alicia Silverstone, and she was doing a anthology on trauma. And I had a poem called No, I'm Not a Vet. And it very clearly addresses my father's World War II vet. Uh, hmm. It very clearly addresses uh, traumatic effects on the body, on the mind, on the spirit of people uh, who come from people who have been similarly uh, in survival mode since yeah. the time you were born, as I was when I was younger. Um, and having layers of that go through families, any family, um, the generations of surviving, the generations, well, I mean, Gerald Visner put it together when he came up with the term survivance in speaking about mm. Native people's uh, survival uh, in this particular book. Uh, because I'm dealing with the state and the trauma. I mean, the governor, the first governor of the state, I mean, called for yeah. genocide of all the Native people in the state when he took the office. That was the first thing he did. Um, and there's implications that spread through all of the communities that come at some point in time or another that represent um, similarly marginalized people in the state. So, of course, there's the internment camps 
uh, with Japanese. And there's all the raising that happened with Chinese people, including in Riverside here, where Bonamino Park is. And all of Chinatown was raised for no reason other than, you know, racism and hatred. And so many people in so many different walks of life who have been perpetrated on so many ethnicities, so many races, actions toward Latinos. I mean, this was Mexico way before it was the U.S. And Mm -hmm. luckily it was because it was Mexico that kicked out the missions who were genociding everybody. You know, there was so much that went on here. Uh, So there's layers and layers and layers of trauma in this place. And to not address that on a very close personal level seemed unconscionable to me because, yes, I'm in witness to, and yes, I've learned about these other things. I mean, I, I worked as a historical interpreter in the city of San Buenaventura, at Levis Adobe, at um, uh, Albear Museum, and the Ortega Adobe when I came out of former field worker training uh, because they got pay for us to get jobs in the city and created jobs for us. And they also put me to work teaching second chance high school. And I never went to high school. Um, I was a field worker and uh, also construction. I broke horses for a living and I did so well through the retraining. I ended up teaching second chance high school. I did have a GED, but I had never attended personally. Um, they created this opportunity for us. So during that time, I was studying California history because it was my job. And uh, and living in California was super interesting to me as well, but I also felt responsible for knowing things about where I had moved to. And uh, so carrying along that historical knowledge for all of these decades now, it had to come out sooner or later, you know? So there's a shared trauma there. Even in carrying something, And knowing it, you're complicit in some way if you don't speak out against it. You know, if you don't take up your part in that as a person living here, you've done more damage. You know, if you don't make space for the original people from this state, you've done more damage. You know, it's it's just a a matter of fact. Uh, So very much. But, you know, in any population, any community, you know, you you feel like, why I don't have a a fluency. A couple of generations ago, people yeah. had a fluency, you know, on any any quadrant of my family that you could come up with, um, you know, not having these things. And that also gives you like a certain set of secondary trauma or tertiary trauma, because yeah. you can't in some way you can connect on a very deep level, uh, soulfully, uh, willfully, mentally, in, intellectually, um, physiologically. But there's a part of you who can't engage fully in certain conversation, in certain ways of knowing, because you're not dreaming in that language. Mm. Subconscious is not here, is not there. It's only a part of that. Uh, so the layers are thick. Yeah. and uh, They are. They are. And they're thick and they're deep and they're meaningful, though. And I've tried to get there. But it's hard sometimes, you know, when you open yourself up to it, there's a risk that we put ourselves at if we're super sensitive and you have to just, but you, it's worth it. It's worth it to feel it. Uh, For many years as a public defender, I didn't feel anything anymore. I always felt it, but I, in court, I would block it. And it's only when I started not blocking it that, you know, I'm taking a new position uh, because I need some courtroom time off. And because of all the vicarious trauma I've witnessed for eight years, 15 years, 14 years now. Yeah. And um, 
I never realized it till recently. And I grew up with a lot of trauma and chaos like you. And it, so it always felt normal. It felt, yeah, yeah, it felt normalized, right? This is home. This is invigorating. And then I started seeing how um, hyper alert I always was and how on edge I always was. Yeah. And it's free yeah, yeah. not to be like that anymore. And it's okay. Yeah. I don't have to carry it for everyone. I can go do my work in a different way. And diff- I can still be a public defender, but do it in a different space. That's a little more safe for me right now. You know? Yeah. And that's necessary. When I was working with Crimley Insane, uh, I had to take breaks on, on yeah. occasion just because when you're working with people who have, you know, murdered several people at a lake or done some other heinous things to people and torture and all the stuff that happens with criminally insane. Uh, people don't get that uh, designation uh, without having done something heinous, most likely. Uh, so the people who are in those wards will always be in there because of the crimes they committed, uh, more than likely. And in working with them on a daily basis, it takes a certain stamina. Oh. And uh, so I've had to take breaks from from that work, from working in juvenile justice and the incarcerated facilities uh, over many iterations, as well as in cancer systems. Um, I teach narrative medicine at UCR, um, and I have been treated for cancer. I was locked up as a kid. I, my mother's schizophrenic. So you name it, I've gone back and served communities that there's some alliance with from my young years, right? Uh, but in doing that, you do take on other people's feelings. One of the brightest things a therapist ever said to me, a talk therapist, sometimes, you know, it's really important to be able to like just have somebody for a sounding board and you don't want your family to have mm-hmm. to hear all your stuff. So just having that one of the most brilliant things a great therapist said to me one time was, um, you know, all of your, uh, all your insecurities, all of the things you have that make you cut yourself down, that make you tear yourself apart, all the self-deprecation is other Mm. people's words. And I was, I had to sit back on that one because, you know, I was, uh, of course I heard, you know, how, in the way I was, how unworthy I was literally from the day I was born forward. And I still get hate mail from people, you know, I mean, those kind of things go on in the world and, uh, and people take them on. And if you hear it enough as a kid, it is your reality and you end up very suicidal. You end up doing a lot of self-harm and making choices that aren't you know, the most intellectual thing you could have come up with that day. Uh, Certainly not common sense or even even an intelligent choice, Uh, but you take it on. And even as adults, and I'm an elder now, I have grandchildren, uh, Mm -hmm. but I take on things. Something might be happening with somebody I'm close to or somebody I'm working with who's in trauma, and I have to let go of that and, and feel it in a different way and allow myself the grace of understanding it, empathizing with it, working with it, trying to assist with it without letting it infiltrate me and without letting it become yeah. me, um, which is how I survived cancer in the day. I mean, I had cancer off and on for about 20 years. And I, wow. I never said uh, during that time, I never said I have cancer during the time I had it, which now I talk about in past tense, I would just say I'm dealing with cancer. Like it was mm-hmm. so many of me I was having to like have it out with. I'm dealing with cancer. 
was the only way I would reply to it or, or speak about it to anybody. And I think it helped me get through so much because I wouldn't take it on. And I think we take on too much. Um, if we're taking we something, we, we do. We have to breathe. We have to feel some sense of freedom, even if it means letting yourself uh, invoke a certain something that's got to come out for you to give to the world. You know, I mean, that's that's your purpose here, really, is just to be original and be you, right? Mm. Yes, because you're all about the love, though. And But I know what you mean about that self-doubt. It's only now at 51 that I'm finally becoming aware of how powerful I could be if I let myself be and stop doubting myself and all that negative self-talk that I used to do that I try, like you said, I try never, never to even verbalize stuff in a negative way or bring stuff in that I don't want brought in. I try to bring mm-hmm. in the positive and the visualization, but really quick. Um, do you mind reading from page five? And, and the only reason is, is um, this one starts with the word Riverside, this excerpt. And I just, I just, I just think this piece, um, before we end, we have another 10 min- eight minutes, but I-, I wanted people to hear this piece because it's so set in place, but it also has such a political um, message for everyone to hear that I think is really important that, that are from the IE, like this is where we live and this is what it is. Riverside, reaching back for slip skateboard. It was hit so hard. He flew while breaking. A crow above whose wings were sunning swooped at the same time the car careened to halt on Martin Luther King Road, near Boardwell Park, east side, where the speed limit suddenly increases while approaching two close crosswalks leading to homes from Stratton Community Center, Boardwell, Emerson Elementary, east side. Black, brown kids, elders, anyone can see. Someone once worked this out. Uh, so oh. let me talk about that experience for just a minute. So I, I teach at UCR and uh, uh, creative writing, school of medicine. Uh, also, we're kicking off an, a new program, hopefully. It's a proposed program in society, environment, and health equity. And um, so affiliated with that as well. Hopefully, it'll go through soon. I was leaving work one evening and coming down Martin Luther King Road, and got close to the parks where the speed limit increases and the crosswalks begin. And directly in front of me, in the middle of the road, a kid in a crosswalk, 20 maybe, suddenly got hit with a car who accelerated coming from the oh. other way. And he flew up in the air and you could see in the contortion of his body, it was not gonna work out well because of the impact. And uh, it wasn't good. When he landed, the first thing I did was dial 911 on the car, you know, the audio on the car. And I just said, there's a man down. They said, what do you mean down? I said, there's no way he's going to get back up. And I said, you need to send out uh, somebody to come and help. And they kept me on the phone. Meanwhile, I got out of the car and started blocking traffic. And a guy passed by on my right and he stopped and went to the back of his pickup and he got out some cones for me to place and helped me put cones up. Another uh, person, pedestrian, came running over a couple cars, stopped. They were trying to give him CPR. I looked at him and knew he was gone. I just Mm -hmm. knew it. 
I knew it when I saw him in the air. I knew it was happening right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just super sad. And what had happened is skateboard slipped in the crosswalk and he reached back to grab it. Oh. And when he reached back to grab it, the car just hit him. And of course, the skateboard slipped out of the crosswalk by about a foot. But, you know, I was watching the whole thing play out in the newspaper reports that he wasn't in a crosswalk. Well, it was by inches and he had been in the crosswalk and that's not really the deal. The deal is there's an increase in traffic at this place where all kinds of kids and elders and people cross all day. And why would any, any, and I've written to the city, I don't know how many times about this since. Why can't you change these speed limits? There's a park here. There's an elementary school. There's a community center. Put there's a light. an elder center. You know, yeah. put a light. Why do you have speed increase for a short time there? It's insane. So, you know, the engineering in the system of the state is diabolical. Yeah. It really is, yeah. you know, and uh, yeah. and who suffers for it? This 20-year-old on a skateboard, you know? Yeah. Uh, it was uh, actually Susan Strait's nephew, by the way, oh my uh, from the Green family here in Riverside. Um, oh so hard gosh. out to that family and hard out to everyone who is was impacted by that loss. It was a tragic, tragic, totally unnecessary death. Uh, And you honored him with this. And, you know, I I just feel for the family because that didn't have to happen. It didn't have to happen. Beautiful person, young person, life ahead of them. And like that, they're gone, you know, over some stupid speed limit increase. Uh, at a crosswalk, at two crosswalks, no less, you know, I mean, at the, at the signs, it's, it's insane. Uh, but, yeah, that's what we're dealing with, and that's really, I think, expressive of the entirety of uh, what's got us into the mess we're in. There's a lot of planning that's caused a lot of problems, and we need to unravel so much of this. And uh, I can't thank you enough for having me on today. And I can't Oh, thank- yeah. Please yeah. tell my viewers where you, they can find your works, your books, take sure, a pass. Sure. And can you just give them some information so people can find you? I did yeah. put the link for uh, the name of her book is Look at This Blue. It's yeah. Coffee House Press. You must get this book. It's up for the National Book Award for Poetry. This book is one long poem. It's so important. It is a call to for change. I mean, it is. It is Ziggy Stardust. It is David Bowie. It is it is brilliant. I mean, brilliant. Look at this blue. Yeah, it's uh, hopefully you know uh, with enough people, there's there's time for things. It's hard to say what's mm-hmm. still reclaimable. Um, what's most up to date? Probably uh, on me on the web. Find my faculty page at UCR. So if you just look up Alice and Adele Hedgecoke, two words surname like Van Buren, we're not Dutch. Uh, you can go to UCR profiles and pull up uh, some very recent material. My major press is Coffeehouse Press. Uh, to, to, under the grace of uh, Coffeehouse, this book has come to be. Uh, there's a nice page of the National Book Awards on Look at This Blue that I really appreciate that's happening. And, uh, yeah, I have a lot of events coming up, and I'm getting around, so come see both uh, Juanita Muntz and me at uh, Beyond Baroque at the end of the month on the 30th. We'll be there with some other uh, Macandistas and looking forward to having a really good time together with the ladies there and, uh, yeah, joining in, talking about trauma and families and our family lives and such uh, truth in that. Uh, I just want to thank everybody for listening in. 
And feel, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, there's an email on my faculty page if you have questions or just have something you want to share or chat. I'm, I'm open to talking. Uh, yeah, hopefully you read the book. Let me know what you think of it. I'm happy to sign it if you get it. And if you teach and you get the book and you bring it in, I'm happy to do a, a class visit. Love working uh, with students. So. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for all your support of me. Um, you've been such a... Uh, I can't, it gets me choked up, so I don't want to cry, but I just want to thank you for all the support you've given to me. And you know what you've done for me in my life. Oh, and I, privilege. You're yeah. great. You're winning yeah. all the awards. She just no, got no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. two got two majors like a week ago. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you. So, thank, thank you. you. So, next episode. Thank you. Thank you. And please check out her books, her other books. I'm going to name them Dry Dog Road Woman, also by Allison Hedgecoke, um, Off Season City Pipes, Streaming, Blood Run, Burn, The Year of the Rat, Rock, Ghost, Willow, Deer. Oh, it's so good. Oh, they're all so good. I mean, but look at this blue is the most recent. Get this book. Please, please, please. It is important for this planet and for everyone Thank in you. California to read this book. And um, next episode is October 19th. I will have Yasmin Ramirez on. She wrote Andale Preta, a memoir. And it's really good too. So she's going to be on October 19th. So yeah. I guess we'll say goodbye. But you're all love, Allison. It's been an honor. I'm so overwhelmed. You've blown <laughs> my you. mind. You've raised uh, my consciousness. Uh, and I just love you. Thank you. Love to you. you on the 30th. Okay, bye everyone.